This podcast is part of the Eat Geek Play Network. For more podcasts about comic books, music, and geek lifestyle, go to eatgeekplay.com. I'll tell you, the hidden secret of many, many, many creative people is that an awful lot of ideas have their genesis in I could do that better than they did. You, you will you will see ideas in movies and stuff that you just feel that you could execute better, and by the time it actually makes it to being a thing, it is completely unrecognizable and being based in the original source. Welcome back to Creative Spaces. My name is Kevin Knight. This is the podcast where we talk inspiration, motivation, and productivity, or even the lack thereof, with different writers artists, directors, and other random people in the creative field. This week, I sit down with writer Justin Jordan. Justin broke into the comic scene in 2011 with his hit book, The Strange Talents of Luther Strode, a series that put Jordan on the map with his unique storytelling through brutal violence. Jordan recently launched John Flood, a brand new series for Boom Studios, the story of a wannabe private eye who is in the constant dream state after the government poked around his brain, successfully removing his need for sleep. You can pick up John Flood as well as trade paperbacks for Luther Strode, Spread, Dead Body Road at our Amazon link. Just go to eekeekplay.com forward slash Amazon for more details. Hi, I'm Justin Jordan. And uh, Justin, where do you call home? Uh, extremely rural Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. How did you end up in Pennsylvania? Birth. Oh, so so you grew up in Pennsylvania? I did. Um, it, it's been one of those things where I've just never really left where I'm originally from. Uh, and it's not that I'm against doing so. But uh, the whole comics thing has only really come about in like the last five years. And I could now kind of afford and work from anywhere. But I haven't really found any place that I really want to go to. Um, and I will say there are a lot of downsides to living in the middle of nowhere, but the upsides are is that the standard of, or not the standard of living, but the cost of living and the standard of living are extremely low. So, uh, you, it, it has given me a lot of flexibility over the course of, uh, deciding what I'm going to do. Cause my house is paid for and all that stuff. So like, I'm not living in, you know, New York city and having to worry about making a $2,000 rent. Uh, payment every month, which which gives me the inability to say yes or no to projects. Uh, I, I can only that imagine. some people just don't have. Uh, yeah, it's like take this project just so I can pay my rent. Sure, indeed. And, and I mean the other part of that too is that I live so far from anything. Like I live eh, probably an hour from the nearest movie theater, uh, give or take. Uh, and that that's kind of kind of indicative of how far I am from just stuff in general. Uh, and the net effect of that means I have an awful lot of time to work because everything's just kind of too far away to get in the habit of going out every night and all that kind of stuff. So it, it does aid in productivity. Uh, the downside is all of that. There's nothing around and nothing to do, uh, which kind of wears on me sometimes uh so i'm not necessarily against moving from here i just haven't really haven't really had a particularly good reason to do so and i and you know i'd have to move my cat and nobody does that <laughs> moving the cat's the hardest part you know no joke i uh i was in the running to get on the writing staff for a television show that'll be on this fall and i the producers wanted me to do it 
uh, and just the budget didn't work out for it. And, and the biggest concern about that, that would by necessity mean I would have to move to L.A. And the, <laughs> the biggest chunk of that is me trying to figure out how to get my cat out there with the minimum amount of fuss. Like, ah, I can adapt anywhere. I'm like, but I got to get my freaking cat across country without traumatizing her too much. So those are the concerns that dominate my life. So you said you've only been writing comics for five years. I've only been doing professionally for five oh, years. Okay, gotcha. there, there was a nice 10-year lead-up where I was trying to break into comics. So there's like 15 years of writing comics. But as a job thing where I had the wherewithal to like, you know, the flexibility that a job like that allows, it's only been the last few years. Did you set out to be a comic book writer or, or just a writer in general? Uh, you know, I, I've, I, it's almost accurate to say I've always written. I, I certainly started writing um, when I was very young. I would, uh, I would sit like my grandfather would take me to the bowling alley with him on Wednesday nights when he bowled, and I would just sit at a table and write stories and stuff. And, like, my talent for the fourth-grade talent show was having a teacher read one of my stories out loud. I was not willing to do it because I was not keen in front of speaking in front of people. Um, so there's there's a 30-year history of that. Um, I started off wanting to get into movies and television, uh, not so much because I love those more than I love comics, but because at that point, uh, I'm 37. Uh, so, and being from rural Pennsylvania, I didn't really get online until I was 18 years old. Um, so considering it was the mid nineties and stuff, there was not for me, uh, not being able to draw, not being able to hang out city. There was not an obvious rat road for me to get into comic books. On the other hand, while movies and television are very hard to break into, there is a fairly clearly defined route that you can figure out by reading books from a library. Um, so that kind of ended up being where I was intending to go by dint of that was the way I could figure out how to, you know, do the kind of stuff I wanted to do. Um, but what happened was is that towards the tail end of when I was in college, I ended up on the Warren Ellis Forum. And the Warren Ellis Forum was a Delphi forum that – ended up being kind of ground zero for a lot of what comics have become today. That was where Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue met, for that matter. Brian Wood was present, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, uh, and just kind of a, a, most of the people who are in our general age bracket, which is now late 30s, uh, who are working in comics now, were there then uh, in some capacity. So it's this, it was this weird, brief kind of ground zero for comics. But I was on there... And that being online, I realized that comics was something that I could do, that I could use this mysterious Internet thing to find artists to draw my stuff and kind of build from there. Uh, and that's what I did. It just took, uh, as things do, uh, a good 10 years before I broke into doing it professionally with uh, the strange talent of Luther Strode. Um, and it was funny because Luther Strode was an immediate success and i went from having no career in comics to having a thriving career in comics in no time flat so it was very much a 10 10 years to an overnight success type of deal did you do any kind of schooling you just said it just uh, can't, kind of came natural for you no i i uh, i went to school for communications journalism uh specific electronic media so editing running cameras that kind of stuff which i did for a while and uh but in terms of actual creative writing, I have honest to God never had a creative writing class. I, I've I've talked that I've talked to that with people. 
Uh, and it's not necessarily that I recommend that, uh, but people ask me why I, by and large, don't use like editors on my image books uh, and stuff like that, which which has changed a bit now. Uh, I have a guy working with me on spread. Um, but even then, Sebastian is not doing what I would guess you would call content editing. He's not. I don't run the story past anybody but the artist. Um, it's you know it's it's kind of purely what we put out. Um, and part of the reason I've done that is that my whole writing career has kind of been weirdly solipsistic. Like I've never been one to send out my writing to like beta readers and I've never been a part of really been a part of writing groups and I never did workshops and I never took creative writing classes and stuff. So the kind of entirety of my comics writing in particular was just me writing comics and kind of putting them out there and it was what it was. Um, which, again, I don't necessarily recommend as a path. That's just how it happened to work out for me. So whatever idiosyncrasies I kind of have as a writer and stuff are probably entirely down to my own personal quirks. So it was more of like trial by error and, you know, just just kind of keeping at it that, that got you to the point with getting Strode going, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's one of those deals where – I think I have a pretty good capacity for like self editing. Like the, I, I, especially in retrospect, I'm pretty good at figuring out what I feel does and doesn't work about my own stuff. Uh, and what, and I, I, I can realize when stuff doesn't work as I intended it, you know what I mean? When stuff isn't coming across to the audience and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's less any sort of, I, I don't know that that's so much a, result of how i came up writing without any kind of like uh support group as much as it is that ability allowed me to succeed in spite of not having all that other stuff you know what i mean and and it's it's always insight is always hard right because it's hard to say to what extent i know my own failings because if you don't know you don't know and since you're looking at yourself the unknown unknowns are always something you got to be mindful of is that what you use as a motivation to to keep going through like 10 years that's a lot of pitching and a lot of throwing stuff out there were you doing any kind of self-publishing or were you just uh, i did i did i did many comics uh i'd been in a bunch of small press anthologies and stuff uh most of what i did back then was uh, it was either short stories, uh, short comic stories, or it was pitching and stuff. I was like, by the time I got to Strode, I had pitched eh, probably 15 different projects over the years. Um, and Strode happened to be the one that hit. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I <laughs> Part of it is I didn't really have any other options in terms of like keeping motivated. And part of it was... I do enjoy writing, so it's it's a reasonably pleasurable thing. It's also incredibly stressful at times uh, for writer insecurity reasons. Um, but I made I had this what I refer to as my Zen thing, which it's not Zen at all, but you know that is what I internally call it. Which is I made a decision a long time ago that. The work is the work and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to try to get better and do work that interests me and that I think is good and things are going to be what they are like. I'll either succeed or I fail, but it's, you know, the pages still have to come. Um, and that's, you know, a habit that has served me well, actually, as a writer. 
I mean, I'm not I'm not necessarily great about writing every day, but I do average a thousand plus pages of like finished comic work a year and have done so for a long time, which is kind of the advantage of coming coming up for like 10 years is that by the time anybody really saw my work, I had many thousands of pages of practice (laughs) behind me. What's your daily life like then? how, How does your day start? Uh, I get up and feed my cat. Uh, usually as soon as I get up, she's insistent on being fed her wet food. So, uh, I go and feed the cat, uh, pet her a little bit. And then I usually start making what kind of constitutes breakfast for me. Um, kind of general, I usually have some coffee first and sort of dick around on the internet. And then, um, usually around 11, I eat whatever I'm going to have for my kind of quasi breakfast it's certainly the first meal i eat of the day but i usually only eat twice so whether or not it qualifies as breakfast is a matter of you know how you view the whole breakfast thing um and then usually sometime around noon or one uh lately it's been more like one uh i usually i use an app called freedom on my computer and what freedom does is that it um shuts off your access to the internet for a predetermined period of time and you can't get back on until either the period uh elapses or you turn your computer off and reboot it um so usually spend two hours that and that two hour chunk of my time is generally when i do my actual scripting um depending on how long any amount of scripting takes during a given day i may do other things creatively uh writing wise in that time period um, but the, the point of that period is to sit down and actually produce pages. Uh, so that takes me to three o'clock or so. And then for an hour or two after that, I kind of noodle with, um, I'll either work on notes for upcoming projects, trying to plot out things or I'll return emails, uh, that kind of thing. I get a lot of emails. I average 60 or 70 emails a day from various things. Um, cause there are a lot of wheels to keep spinning. Um, and then sometime around four or five, I usually go for a walk and then I'll come home and lift weights or whatever for an hour or so. And then I have dinner. And then after that, if there is more email business, bookkeeping kind of stuff to be done, I'll kind of do it then. But I try to have my day wrapped up by seven or eight, um, simply because I have found that, uh, I, I can do, I can do the various and sundry parts of business stuff anytime in terms of that. But if I try to actually do the honest to God creative work after maybe seven or eight at night, I then get so wound up mentally, I can't sleep. Um, and I, I have found that it just, it's not worth it in terms of fucking up my entire weekly schedule. Uh, because if I end up, if I end up writing at night, which I very occasionally do, if there's like deadline crunch stuff going on, I then can't sleep till like six in the morning. And it, (laughs) it takes me a good solid week to get back into any kind of a rhythm. Uh, and I usually do that, that, or something like that, probably six days a week. Um, some of that stuff is every day. Obviously I need to eat myself and feed the cat every day. Um, but usually I try to take Saturdays off entirely from doing anything remotely productive. I just go out or, you know, go see a movie, watch television, nap, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's also all the demands of freelance work mean your schedule kind of is what it is. Uh, that's kind of the ideal schedule. Yesterday I didn't get any actual script pages done. I just worked on. Uh, plotting and that kind of stuff, stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be seen by anybody but me. So the, uh, the, the amount of stress involved in it is, and mental labor is a little less intensive than writing the actual script pages. And then 
you know, and any on any given month I have, you know, often have cons and all that kind of stuff. And that sort of throws the schedule off. But yeah, in general, I, uh, I aim for uh, two hours of solid writing a day, six days a week. Um, and that, that usually gets me my thousand plus pages a year. So you said you use, um, freedom. I do. And do you, do you think that, uh, an app like that forces you into a work mode? It does. I don't know that it does for everyone. Uh, and that's one of those things that I've kind of figured out in terms of getting the kind of product productivity out of myself that I want, um, is that I've found that things work for me. And a lot of that, in fact, everything that I routinely use, I thought sounded stupid before I actually did it, uh, which there's the freedom app. And the other part of it is I do is when I'm doing this two hours or whatever, I use a variation of like the Pomodoro method. Like I basically work for 25 minutes and then get up and walk around, go to the bathroom, whatever, for five minutes and then another 25 minutes. So it's, you know, I get I, I've only got to focus on the next half hour or whatever or 25 minutes of whatever it is I'm doing. Um, but in the case of freedom, yeah, the thing about freedom is I'm like, well, that's just stupid. Like, what kind of a difference would that make? But I have found that it, it's it's hard to get started writing. It's easy to press the button that starts freedom. Right. And that has become kind of the ritual. So in my case, what was useful was finding the minimal thing that I could do that would sort of start the process. Um, do you feel is, it's almost like a Pavlovian experience? Yes. Like, like the minute at, you, at, you, you, you click that button, you're, it's, it's work mode. Yes. And at this point it is. Um, by design, uh, I mean, I, I've tried to engineer it to be that way. And I've used that to a certain extent with other stuff like – those daily walks and that kind of stuff, the way I was able to get in a habit about doing like that kind of stuff uh, in my attempt to, you know, not die is that uh, I would set kind of a minimum. I would try to figure out what was the minimum I could do. It had to be something that was so easy that I would internally feel like a jackass if I skipped it. So I would set these minimum standards, right? So like my minimum standard for any day's walk is actually just a mile, which is like 20 minutes. Like, because frankly, if I can't put 20 minutes in doing something, I'm just going to feel like a prick internally because uh, that's just sad. And I found the motivation to do that is enough. But once I get started, I usually do more. I, I, I usually walk for an hour or so and do three miles or whatever. But the reason I can do that is that I don't have to do that. And that's kind of the same deal with writing. Like all I really have to do is turn on the freedom. I, I could sit here and just stare at a blank screen or go read a book for those two hours. But as long as I do that every day, that that's enough of a lead into the process that I want, that it kicks off the kind of operant conditioning habits that I've got going on that I've kind of done to myself. And I found it works really well for me. I don't know that it would work well for everyone. I think, you know, trying to maximize your own internal productivity is figuring out uh, what actually does and doesn't work for you in terms of stuff. Like, I, I, that's like there's things like getting things done by, what is it, David Allen and stuff. And, like, that kind of organizational stuff did nothing for me. It just doesn't help. Like, I've tried it, and I can't really stick to it, and, like, it's just – doesn't work well with my kind of psyche i guess I, but, I feel like like you you kind of have to find what works for you that you know bet between getting things done your management skills what helps you tap into that creative nature of, of your psyche where you can actually feel that okay now i'm in that state where i need to get this done this particular thing oh um, yeah absolutely where did you pick up the pomodoro method from 
Oh God, I don't even remember at this point. Um, I it, it was definitely it was after Freedom, um, and it was the thing was is that I had read Freedom had is it, kind of a I don't know if trendy is the word I would use, but certainly it has gotten discussed in articles and stuff because a lot of a fairly number of fair number of actual big name writers have used it and talked about it and stuff. And I was like, all right, I wasn't, you know, I was still struggling to make uh, getting the work done less of a daily struggle. Uh, and that was always getting started. I knew getting started was kind of my deal. Um, and so I was willing to give freedom a shot and I didn't think it would work. And I found out that it was, it worked particularly well for me. And that made me more open to trying out other things. Uh, and I don't know anymore where I, where I heard about the Pomodoro method, but it was one of those things that I thought sounded kind of silly, but I was like, you know what? It cost me literally nothing to try it, uh, and I'll try it and see how it works. And I really did find that chunking stuff up into 25-minute bursts makes stuff easier, you know, especially on those days where you just don't want to write. Like, And sometimes that's the case. Like sometimes I'm really into a story. And I'm real enthusiastic and like, you know, I don't I don't need to make myself want to do something. But on the days where I've had trouble figuring out a story or I'm just tired and I will be like, all right, I just got to get through 25 minutes. And looking at that small, manageable chunk of time uh, works for me. And, and 25 minutes is enough to do a meaningful amount of work, but not so long that it becomes kind of onerous, uh, I think. So yeah, I don't know where I don't know where I came from it, but I've I've actually tried out a number of productivity, life hack type of things, and uh, I've just it's been one of those. It's like the Bruce Lee thing is like you know just discard what you don't need and you know integrate what works for you into your kind of style, um, and that's that's what has worked for me. With using the the Pomodoro technique though, um, I have, I've I, I use it as well. And um, I feel like the, you reach that point, though, where you're just you're just tacking on that time. Do you do that as well where you just, oh, well, I'm in 25 minutes into it because the, the idea is if you feel like you need another 25 minutes, you add that on and then just take a 30 minute break at the end of that. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes it just happens. I don't know that I ever plan to do that. Um I, I, as a matter of fact, it happened to me on like Tuesday that I realized that I was at like 40 minutes and I was like, well, I'm not stopping now. I'll just go to, you know, whatever. Um, but I have found that for me personally, like trying to stick to the 25, five schedule works best. Um, it, it works best for making my daily kind of productive work longer. Um, usually what happens is if I, if I try stacking them like that, then I get to the half hour break and I just don't do anything else after that. Um, which is again, I, I, my, my version of the Pomodoro is somewhat different in that regard. Cause there's no, there's no real half hour break in part of it. You know what I mean? I just do my four, four chunks and then I'm done for the day usually. Um, and that, that's because I've found that once I stop for more than five minutes or so, I'm unlikely to start again. Do you actually have an egg timer sitting on your desk? No, I just use the thing that's on my computer. I'm I'm a total like, I'll try this app. I'll try that. You know, it's like I, I feel like I'm always looking for Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I am for the most part not an app guy just because I am not particularly tech savvy. Um, so anything that requires me to download anything has a pretty high barrier to entry for me, like compared to a lot of people. 
uh and, and you know given the nature of where i live i i am not in the habit of routinely using like a smartphone and stuff for a lot of things i do more now than i used to but there's no cell service out here right which obviously doesn't affect apps but it does mean that i just haven't gotten in the habit of having my phone around all the time it's usually sitting on the on the dining room table or wherever uh although i have found these days i use it a lot more in uh working out to like uh i use both the timer and just the stopwatch to like measure out my time between sets when i'm lifting weights and that kind of stuff for like i've been trying to learn to meditate as of late so i just set the timer on the phone and uh use that to like try to get the get the deal down you're the first writer i've, I've talked to to mention meditation how has that helped you too soon to tell uh because i've only been doing it for a couple of weeks now and I, I i can only manage like five minutes at a time um the reason for it is that i have been i had a really bad jag with major depression uh when i was uh, 21 22 uh, and I have been on uh, SSRIs, uh, antidepressants, uh, since then, which is fine. Uh, for me, the antidepressants worked, and I have not had any side effects for them, so I've been on them for a decade and a half now. Um, but the nature of it is is that they just don't work uh, perfectly. Like, I still get periods where I can feel myself. I wouldn't call it even a minor depression, but I can definitely feel periods where I start to feel the kind of anxiety and stuff that, that happened with that starting to creep in. Um, and so the attempt to meditate, uh, it, it is related to my productivity in the sense of, I try to fight that up and downness of my moods and things because they negatively affect, uh, my work. It's not the only reason I do it, but the, the fact that I like what I do and want to continue to do it, uh, and I know that if I let one of those down periods throw me off writing for like a week, it's really hard to get started again, and it can kind of jack up my whole schedule. So me- I'm, I've, I've tried to meditate any number of times in the past to see if there is any benefit to that in terms of my mood and all that kind of stuff. Um, but this time I've made – I've kind of taken the same approach that I did for – uh, walking and writing and all that kind of stuff, which is I just set kind of a really easy to meet minimum that I'm going to feel like an asshole if I don't try for at least five minutes a day and make it part of my daily schedule. Um, and so far, I, it's hard to say what the effects are. I do know that I was having some anxiety yesterday and I was able to kind of kick my brain into something approximating the meditative mode and felt better the rest of the day. Like I kind of quelled the anxiety so my my thoughts is that it's helping uh it's just difficult for me to do and it's kind of i'm i'm only in the beginning of it now so let me ask you this you're um you you write a couple different books yes how do you stay on top of all the things that you're writing uh i don't no i don't know i uh i don't know i just uh i i'm i'm a pretty meticulous outliner and plotter Um, so it's one of those deals that whenever I'm going into like an arc of a book or even when I'm starting in a book, I generally know, uh, how my run on a book or the run of a book is generally meant to go like for spread. There's an end point for spread. And I know roughly how the story goes for 50 or 60 issues. There's space in there for detours and side routes and all that kind of stuff, but I have an overall plan that I come up with when I come up with the story. 
Uh, and it's the same way with with Strode, and it's the same way with John Flood. And John Flood's a miniseries, so it in particular has a very, very close thing. And I have that all written down, that kind of stuff. And that makes it easy for me to just start working on an issue, write an issue to completion, then work on something else and come back to it. Because I don't, I don't have to refresh myself in what the story's about as much because I've worked all that out ahead of time, and I need, just need to look at my notes. Um, but I do try to keep, uh, I do try to keep the various, uh, issues of stuff. Uh, I try not to go too terribly long without working on something like I am. Uh, let's see. We just finished issue nine of spread, uh, today. Uh, well, we finished it on Wednesday, but we're doing the print stuff today and I've already written through issue 13 on it, but I are 14. I did 14 this week. Um, and for various reasons, I'm going to do uh, my next week, actually, or week, week and a half, however long it takes me. We'll be doing 15, 16, and 17. Um, so I'll finish out that arc just so Kyle is able to plan out any kind of stuff he needs in terms of environment design and all that kind of stuff way the hell ahead of time rather than kind of doing it issue to issue. But in general, even though I am that far ahead on spread, I will very, very hard try to make an effort not to spend more than a month away from the book. Because you don't want it to cool too much, especially when something's ongoing like that. Um, but I am not one of those people who uh, skips around from project to project within any writing day. Um, and generally not within – it will be within a week. But usually when I start an issue of anything, that's the only thing I'm working on until that issue is done. I don't I don't write five pages of this, five pages of that, five pages of that. I have. Uh, sometimes the nature of the job necessitates that you do that, especially when you're going to work for higher stuff and the editing process takes as long as it takes and you have deadlines you need to hit and the artists are working on stuff. And sometimes you have to write pages, uh, at a time and hand them to them. But I like to like to run straight through for something And a script. Usually it, it depends on the script. Mostly I can finish a script in two or three days of actual scripting time. Are you a, a long form script guy or do you do you do more Marvel method style? I'm a, I'm a long form script guy. I mean, I have, um, I was talking with uh, some artist friends about this today. I, I have kind of what would be called the John Wagner Scott style, which uh, they classically describe John Wagner's judge judge scripts as get like getting really exciting telegrams. Um, because like dread grim would be a panel description for him. So most of my, most of my panel descriptions are maybe a sentence. I don't, I don't go with the Alan Moore method of these long florid descriptions, but I do specify, however many panels I have kind of in mind for a page. And I write full script in that sense. I've done the Marvel method kind of stuff uh, a few times, um, sometimes by necessity, but I have found that it is for me, not a very natural working style. Um, it, it takes a lot more time for me to do it than it does to write a full script, oddly enough. Uh, and, and so I've mostly tried to avoid doing that whenever I can. That said, I am, and I tell artists this going in, like the, the script is meant to be looked at for them as sort of a rough guideline, especially in terms of panels and stuff. Like there are story beats that need to happen, but as long as they happen more or less in the order they're supposed to be happening, uh, I don't care if you add or subtract panels. It, it usually won't matter. Um, and they're usually good about that. I, I try to work with and have been lucky enough to work with uh, really talented people um, who can make intelligent story to tell it. To, telling decisions like that what's the best advice somebody's ever given you finish things um which i've been given by any number of people it was not 
that I ever really had a problem with finishing things. Uh, well, as related to comics, uh, the, the 13 or 14 unfinished novels I've got in my digital archives would indicate that I am, in fact, not great at finishing some things. Um, but I started off with comics. I, I started out with like five page shorts um, and that kind of stuff. And you, ha- you kind of have to be a real asshole to not finish five pages. Um, and so I got in the habit of finishing things then. But I've been given that advice by any number of, of people over the years. And it is my go to uh, it is my go to advice for people. My my expanded version of that is finish things don't spend your time endlessly rewriting the same one thing. Um, It's not that I, I don't like to rewrite. I I do. I, it is not, I'm not one of those people who enjoys it, which is one of the reasons that I'm a very meticulous outliner is to try to minimize the extent to which I have to rework a project after I've actually written the script. But uh, there's kind of this deal where people, writers will get into a really bad habit of writing an issue of something or a novel or whatever. And then they don't write anything else new. They just, they just keep polishing that same thing. And especially when you are coming up and when you're trying to learn. And I mean, you should always be trying to learn, I think, but you know, especially during the early stages, like I think you learn a lot more from writing new and different stuff than you do from trying to polish the same stone. Uh, and so that that's the advice I usually give to people. I'm like, finish stuff, try to get it illustrated, try to keep working on new projects. How important is that to just always be creating something new instead? I mean, you could your career could just be another Luther Strode book, you know, and and that's it. But you've gone on and to do all these other books. Um, how important is that to you to just just continually create something new? Uh, I mean, personally, it's important to me. I think it's good career advice in general for people and good creative advice for people in general. Um, I think, though, it's it's one of those deals like it's the problem with being typecast, uh, for lack of a better term, is that, yeah, like if you go and you're you're like, you know, the ultra violence guy, which I could conceivably be considered because of Strode. And that's fine as long as people want that. But people won't always want that so you're you're by dint of you know that doing that one thing even if you do it really well uh the odds are against you in terms of making that a long-term career my goal is to never have to actually work a real job again so but aside from that like it it keeps me interested in what i'm doing and and some of that is by design like i attempt to do things that i don't know that i'm going to be good at um, just so that I can kind of increase my skill set overall. And it keeps me involved and interested in the process. Uh, and I think I would be anyhow, just because of the nature of getting into characters and plot is good. But I think in general, like being able to focus on that kind of Kaizen improvement thing is, is a way to keep yourself from getting stale and a way to keep yourself involved in your own career. Is that how you ended up with DC? Uh, no, Th- that was, uh, I mean, I've applied that to some of my career in DC. My, my career at DC was that I wanted to do it and needed money, uh, which, you know, they, they do pay a heck of a lot of money. I had gotten asked by basically a uh, a professional writer at dc whose name i'm not going to mention because i don't want them bombarded by people trying to help them break in uh had messaged me on twitter as a matter of fact twitter direct message was like hey do you want to work for dc i really like luther strode now introduce you to some editors and they did and they offered me a job um but once i was in there like like the reason i took new guardians which was the last thing i've done for dc as to date 
Um, New Guardians is, of course, a big cosmic Green Lantern type book, which is a pretty big departure from anything I've ever done. And the reason I said yes to that job was specifically because I hadn't done anything like that and I didn't know if I could and I wanted to try. Um, so in as much as I can, I, I, I have tried even with my work for higher work to kind of apply that ethos to, to that, if ethos is the word, um, of trying to do new things and trying not to, you know, sit on the laurels of just telling the kind of things I think I'm good at. Uh, and I think that's been to my benefit. I think I've become a better writer over the years that I've been doing stuff. And then some of that is that I'm trying to be a better writer. Do you feel like doing the independent route, though, is is harder for your career than just being like, OK, I could do the, the Marvel DC hustle? I don't know. Um, I, I genuinely don't. I, I kind of suspect not. Um, I, but that's one of those things that kind of involves with the nature of how comics are at the current point. Like we got real lucky with Luther Strode in a number of ways. Like the, the amount of time, the amount of ways I got lucky with Strode is, is too numerous to mention. But one of, one of the big ones is that image really got behind that book and they got behind it at a time when images star was really starting to rise to become what it is now. Um, and now doing creator own books is kind of a different animal uh, than it was uh, would have been five years ago, even when I started. If I, you know, if it had been a year earlier, it would have been a different beast. Um, and now there, there's almost this this perception that you do the Marvel and DC work to kind of elevate the status of your creator own stuff, um, which is not not kind of how things used to be. Um, and, and certainly, I didn't uh, I didn't write Strode with the intent of it being something that would get me work at Marvel or DC. I, because, because I would like to get paid by Marvel and DC, I did, I am mercenary enough to have had the idea that, yes, I think if we do that book successfully, it is a book that editors could look at and see how me and trad could fit into their company. Um, but it was mostly that I wanted to do the book and, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not something I did as a calling card to kind of get work. It was a you know a project I did because I wanted to do the project, which is which has been how all of my creator and stuff has gone. Which I don't know if actually answers your question remotely. <laughs> what was that one defining moment where you went? You know, I think I can make this as a writer. Ah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, I it's weird. Uh, it, it's it's <laughs> one of the things about Image Comics is that Image Comics has a very kind of relaxed approach to things, right? So the entire green light process for Luther Strode was literally this. Yeah, we'll publish this. That was the entire green light. I have, in five years, never seen the mythical Image contract. That's despite having done 40 issues of stuff for them thus far, or 30. Wow. Something like that. Yeah, uh, so... It didn't really feel real to me until I got I actually had issue in hand and I was like, OK, this is a thing. Um, and but even then, that that wasn't any kind of a guarantee that you're going to have an actual career. Um, so, you know, when I got offered jobs at, at DC and Valiant was probably one of them. But honestly, you know, even now, I, I still worry that, like, I'm just going to fall back out of the industry. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's been five years. The reasonable thing to conclude is if you can do it for five years, you can probably keep it going indefinitely. Um, but that doesn't feel true to me. You know what I mean? That's the difference between what my 
what my insecurities and instincts feel and what my brain is pretty sure is true. Um, so it's hard to say about there being a defining moment like that. It's just a, a kind of a series of smaller, smaller moments. Um, certainly, I, I once I read Strode being printed, I, it was a better book than I remembered writing, you know, in a weird way. And it, that was one of those things where I'm like, I can do this. This is, you know, this is a good book. Like, especially now that I, I look at it from when you can see the forest rather than just the trees when you're not knee deep in actually writing the book you can be objective ish about what you're doing and i read that book and it's still i'm still immensely proud of all the strodes and i again it was just one of those things where i kind of felt like yeah this is something i'm good at like i may or may not be financially successful at it but creatively i was definitely getting where i wanted to be earlier you talked about the business aspect of, of things how important is the business side of being a writer, of continuing to build your career, um, you know, and, and not just working on what you're working on right now, but being able to look forward to the next six months to a year to, you know, of, of work. So you're not having those those struggling moments. Uh, extremely. And I mean, that's that's one of those things where I was really lucky to have taken as long as I did to break into comics. Um, I was 32, 33 whenever Strode got picked up. Um, and I had in my 20s, I had run a business uh, doing uh, video production commercials, that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I wouldn't say the business failed, but I ultimately stopped doing it because of the stress and the lack of foresight and stuff involved. And having had that experience was useful to me for looking at my career as a business as much as anything else. And I do I do and have kept an eye on the business aspects of it and building out my career in, in as much as I can, because um, some of it is just happenstance that you can't really control. Um, but I do try to keep an eye towards the next thing and making sure that I don't have to do anything else that I, that I can make this my career. Um, and, and you're to a certain extent operating in the dark there because you just don't know, uh, how things are going to go. So you're kind of going with your gut. Um, like, you know, the boom books, there were a couple of reasons I took books to boom. Um, they were books I really wanted to do, but I didn't feel like, they necessarily fit into kind of the image brand in the sense of books that I thought would really do well as image books. And for me, as the writer, that's not quite as big a deal as it is for the artist because I can and do work on any number of projects in a month's time. So I've got multiple streams of money coming in so I can afford for a book to make me virtually no money. But the artist, you know, if an artist is going to put out six issues of a book, that is at a minimum six months of their time. And it's six months of full-time plus time. Like, you know, people, people will bitch about artists only putting out, uh, you know, well, they can't put out a book a month. I'm like, yeah. And like, you should be aware that every artist I know works 12 or 14 hours a day pretty much every day like it's not a 40 hour a week gig for most people um and so if a book fails and you're working entirely on back end which is the image model like well that's just a year of that person's life down the tubes uh and that is that is not necessarily a risk that i'm willing to try to talk people into unless i think the reward is going to be worth it 
Um, and with the books I took to Boom, they were kind of iffy for me, but they were books I really wanted to do. Now, the other part of that is that Boom has a first look deal with Fox. Uh, and I thought that Boom represented, especially with the books I took to them, my best chance at getting something optioned. And that was not a goal necessarily for the money involved so much as it was to get my foot in the door. I reasoned that it would be easier to get my other stuff that I had a bigger stake in optioned if I had already had something optioned. I was would be something of a known entity. And that seems to have worked. But the problem is, is I don't know if it was my reasoning was sound or if I'm just lucky as all hell. Uh, but in general, that kind of thing is the, is, is the logic you should apply to your career. Uh, especially for me, there's so many projects that I want to work on. Um, coming up with enough ideas to keep working is not ever the issue. So I try to structure them in a way that, God help me for using this term, builds my brand. Um, like when I did Spread at Image, and I am doing Spread at Image, uh, Spread is a book, I, it's different than the Strode books, but I feel it's a book where I can take the audience from Strode and they will probably like Spread and vice versa. Um, and as I start keep doing projects, I'm trying to daisy chain out where I'm doing different stuff that's not so different from the last thing that I did that I'm alienating my existing fan base. So I'm looking to expand what I can do, but in a way that's bringing the other people along for a ride. And that that affects the way that I choose to do when I choose to do projects in the chronology of my overall career um, to the extent that you can choose that. Like, again, you just you can't predict what's going to get greenlit necessarily and you don't know how once something gets out whether it's going to be a success or not um like john flood i'm doing it boom right now is my second book boom my first book book at boom was deep state um with ariella christentina and deep state uh and it did indeed get optioned and all that kind of stuff and that was great but the book didn't sell uh and I don't think it's a bad book. I, it is It is seriously exactly the book I intended to put out. It is the art that I wanted. It is the design that I liked. The story was pure me. And the people that did read it, by and large, seemed to really enjoy the book, but there just wasn't a lot of support for it. So eight issues is all we got. Um, John Flood, on the other hand, in as much as you can tell from having been out for three days, just seems to be making a splash in the way that Deep State didn't. And I honestly couldn't tell you what the difference was. I, I don't know why one book is looking to be a big success and the other, which just sort of there uh, in terms of sales. Do you feel like that's just kind of a luck Go of the draw, though? I mean, it's just one of those deals where you just don't know. There are so many factors that influence it, like... You know, and and that's just the ones you you can think of that might be an influence. Like it might be that if we put out Deep State now as opposed to when we did, just because of where retailers are in their ordering cycle for the year, that it would have been a bigger success. Or, you know, any number of things, plus the infinite number of things I can't think of ahead of time. Um, so you make the best reasoning that you can and you take the shots you can. But at, at the end of the day... It is there's only so much you can do to influence things. You know, what I mean, if you do the marketing, you get the interviews out there, you make sure the book, at, it gets as much exposure as you can. But order retailers either order it or they don't and readers either read it or they don't. And there's only so much you can do to influence that. And at the end of the day, there are so many factors that can work against you that, you know, the best you can do is the best you can do. Now, you had mentioned earlier about uh, branding, how important to you as a writer is branding yourself. I mean, do you, um, you, you, cause you, say, you seem kind of resistant towards that saying that, you know, as much as you don't want to brand yourself, but do you feel like 
in this day and age, you almost have to be that that personality along with being just a writer. To an extent. Uh, and it's one of those things where <laughs> the thing is, it's not I, I realistically what I know know about is I am more resistant to the term branding than I am the concept. Because the way I look at it, what branding is, is developing a uh, – it's developing a brand so that people have some idea what to expect from you so you don't leave people that would be interested in your work behind, right? And I think that's valuable. And I don't necessarily know that it's limiting. Uh, I don't feel like it's been limiting to my career because I kind of do whatever I want. But I do internally try to keep an eye towards that brand. Um, what I can't do what I and what I've, what I've been – I, I, and I can't tell you that I'm even morally opposed to it necessarily is like the idea of building like a persona. Like hopefully the guy you get on this interview is the guy you get on Facebook and Twitter. And if you meet me at a con, it's all the same dude. Like, because I, it's not even that I have any kind of like opposition to building a persona. I'm just too lazy to do it. Like I, I don't have the mental energy to try to project somebody that I'm not. Um, but what I can do is in terms of the creative decisions that I make with my business career is try to make sure that there's a common thread linking people so that if you've read me in one book, you will want to follow me to the other. And like if I went immediately from Strode to writing like a manga romance book with absolutely no kind of violence or anything, I don't know that people would make that leap with me. And I think, you know, there's this person, I think if you do that, if you, if you hop around too much, especially initially, you make it hard to build a fan base because people don't know what to expect. But when you've got several books under your belt, the, you get kind of a finer resolution in terms of what people are looking at in you. You know what I mean? Like if you've read five or six different series by me now, even though they're in different genres and different things, you can probably kind of get the people that have read all of those know what they like about my writing. And I think and hope they're willing to take a leap with me to the next thing, even if it's not something they would necessarily expect from me. So in that aspect, I think branding is kind of useful. Um, uh, when branding becomes an issue is when you focus too much on the brand and not enough on the content. Um, not, not necessarily a huge problem in comics necessarily, but just in general, it's real easy to like, kind of sink into the brand rather than the uh product you're putting out so you're saying that your next book is going to be a, a manga romance book totally uh i know but like no joke the, the the stuff i the stuff i am in fact working on and developing one of them is kind of a young adult uh graphic novel thing um that that has elements that you would recognize it's kind of a horror book but not it's definitely not like a hard R kind of horror book. Um, and then I'm kind of noodling with doing an all ages book, which I've wanted to do for a while now. So like, if you go from like the hyper violence of Luther Strode to that, it, it, it's going to seem like a pretty big leap. Um, but yeah, I kind of, kind of follow whatever, whatever seems interesting to do. And again, because a lot of my work is action oriented and violent and all that kind of stuff. While I don't have any intention of stopping doing that stuff, there's a reason I have it in my work. It's because I enjoy writing it and reading it the way that is. I also do want to do projects that take me away from my comfort zone in that regard. So 
putting kind of self self-imposed limitations on that stuff, I think is helpful. You know, I, you, you can kind of liken it to an extent to poetry. Like the whole point of writing an iambic pentameter is to do it within the confines that you've chosen for yourself. Um, and so writing books where I don't have the crutch of an action scene coming up to write on helps me build different skills that hopefully will make all of my books better. That's what I was going to ask you next is, do you feel like pushing that boundary makes you a better writer? I do. I do. I think that, I think the bigger uh, in 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 writing uh, Stephen King uh, and I don't write like Stephen King, but Stephen King's in on writing is my favorite uh, writing manual type thing ever, just because no other book will make you want to write as much as reading Stephen King writing about writing. But one of the things Stephen King talks about is the toolbox, and he's kind of using a toolbox as a metaphor for all the tools you have as a writer, like, you know, being able to use grammar and all that, you know, plot structure and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And and so I think generally the bigger you can make that toolbox to steal the metaphor from him, the better your stuff's going to be because if you're doing something and you run into a problem in the story and you don't you haven't experienced it before you will probably try to find shortcuts around it but if you've done enough stuff you've probably encountered that kind of thing before and you can use a tool you develop somewhere else to solve that problem in this story um so i think overall hopefully your work is getting better and better because you've done different stuff and you've thought about how to handle different sets of problems and there's also the idea that as you do more and different stuff as you work within you know different genres and doing stuff you haven't done before you start to look at how you tell stories differently with a greater array of options you know you don't have to necessarily have horror or something in every issue of like spread uh there probably will be but just to use an example you know it it, kind of changes over time if you know if you if you've learned you can write an effective romance comic then you can use romance more steadily in your crime books than you might otherwise have been able to do for instance, that's a great way to look at it. Ted, and I hope it's not bullshit. <laughs> well, you never know. You you say and hope these things are true, right? When you're working at it. But again, it's it's the nature of like the subjective nature of writing and entertainment is that there is always in my mind, anyhow, some degree of man. I think that's true, and I hope it's true. But I also acknowledge that I might just be talking entirely out of my ass. Last question. Sure. Is there something that you've come across? that you've gone god damn it i wish i would have thought of that or i never thought of doing writing something that way oh yeah uh on on micro and macro levels and stuff like um i remember i was reading uh my buddy uh josh williamson did a book called xenoholics and the first issue of xenoholics opens with a double page spread which basically means that the comic starts on the inside cover of that comic and it literally never occurred to me that you could do that. Like, you know, it, it seems fairly obvious that, yeah, you can fucking do that if you want on a creator-owned comic. Um, but it, I, I was just blown away because that was a use of the form in a way that would not have crossed my mind to do. Uh, and there are other examples of that, like um, Eric Stevenson's They're Not Like Us. Uh, They're Not Like Us starts on the cover of the first issue. The, the image on the cover is actually part of the story. Um, and that is not something that had crossed my mind to do. And it's the same way with um, if you look at like what Will Eisner did with how he integrated like storytelling into the landscape and stuff like that's not stuff on my own I would do. But it, in terms of story that happens in terms of how you tell stories it happens. I was um, 
I was reading uh, The Wicked and the Divine by Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey, and I've known Karen and Jamie for a long time. Uh, and it's been interesting to see them evolve. But one thing that is true of both of them is that they absolutely approach storytelling in ways that would never occur to me to do. Um, and so you get that. And then there's just the general idea space where there's stuff I want to do that people just get to first. Um, and sometimes it's in weirdly, amazingly specific ways. Like <laughs> I had this idea for a book I wanted to do. Um, and the book was about they had basically worked out a way to clone someone's mind, um, but the process didn't work all that well. So it would have been about a guy being made to track down all these kind of people that had been overwritten with his personality. So it would be a person against like five or six different versions of itself who were going crazy. Um, and the overall, but the name of that was Ghost Protocol. This was before Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And I'm like, what are the what are the odds of something like Ghost Protocol being used by two entirely separate projects? Like, I don't know where I came up with that I, that name title from. We might have been drawing from the same source, but I'm like, really? That that's that's how it is. So yeah, on on uh, on micro and macro levels, that kind of stuff happens all the time. But like that that is one of the benefits of uh, I, my other advice to people when they ask me about writing is to read extensively which is everybody's uh kind of go-to writing about go-to advice about writing and the reason you do that is just that like you just there's just things you won't necessarily ever have thought of um that is one of the reasons i love reading kieran's stuff it's one of the reasons i love reading matt fraction's stuff um there's stuff like for instance i could probably write an issue uh about a dog solving a crime from the dog's point of view but i guarantee you it would never have crossed my mind to actually do it it would never <laughs> cross my mind it would never cross my mind to put a musical number in a comic book like those are just not ideas i would have they're not things that are probably beyond me in terms of skill um so just the fact that you do that and the thing is you don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that you start imitating those things but as you expand your awareness of what's possible it it kind of expands your boundaries in your own head for what you can do with stuff so i've learned stuff from layout that's not the same as what josh did with xenoholics but i can tell tell you that the idea of playing with how we're using the pages and comics for me comes from that it comes from you you know looking at that kind of stuff and it's the same way with even more mundane things like i love the fact that uh and i don't do this well in my books as yet but i love the fact if you look at jonathan hickman's image books they all have a very consistent graphic design theme to them that you can fucking see on a shelf from 20 feet away and go even if you've never seen it before you're like that's a jonathan hickman book it draws the eye and it's instantly identifiable which again loops around in the branding and that kind of stuff but that's not stuff that i would necessarily think of on my own if i had not observed others doing it now what i will do will not be the same as what jonathan hickman does but if i get around to having a kind of common template for how my books look graphically design wise it'll be rooted in the fact that i've seen jonathan hickman's books you know what i mean what i, I always like to say is good artist borrows great artist steal <laughs> yeah so it, it, I feel like like that's that's actually when you can go oh he did that I'm gonna do that one step better and I, I feel like some people just don't understand that it's okay to to steal and make something your own. Well, I'll tell you the hidden secret of many 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 creative people is that an awful lot of ideas have their genesis in 
I could do that better than they did. Like, you know, you, you will you will see ideas in movies and stuff that you just feel that you could execute better. And by the time it actually makes it to being a thing, it is completely unrecognizable and being based in the original source. Uh, and and that, that's kind of the deal is like, yeah, great artists steal, you know, so it, it's words to live by, honestly. Well, we we've been at this for a while and I can continue to do this, but I think people might kill me. <laughs> <laughs> they can yeah, only take I, so I have, much of hearing our voices. I, uh, I tend to tend to get into sometimes rambling long. And- um, where can people find you online? Uh, my, uh, Twitter handle is Justin underscore Jordan. Um, and I have a Facebook profile that's open to the public. Uh, so if you don't appear to be an asshole or a spam bot, uh, I usually say yes to that kind of stuff. I don't really have any kind of other, uh, other web presence again to my detriment for business and branding. Um, but I, my books are all available on Comixology or at your, you know, handy dandy local comic book retailer, which is not necessarily online, but it is a good place to find my stuff. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Don't forget to follow Justin on Twitter. It's just at Justin underscore Jordan. Also, you can go over to ekeekplay.com forward slash Amazon and pick up some of Justin's books. You buy it through that link, you help out this website. Now, if you already have all of Justin's books and you feel like helping out Ekeek Play, go over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you got this podcast from and leave a review. Tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Please help out. Spread the word. Next week, I've got a really, really cool guest, a guy named Greg Rucka. You're going to want to come back for this one. See you next week. <laughs>